In John chapter 16, I'd like for us to begin with a consideration of God's Word, verse 28. Jesus, just hours before he is delivered up to be crucified, said these words to his disciples. John 16 and verse 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world to go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, is now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to them whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. They have received them and have come and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you whom you have given me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world's hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, in, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world. I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified by the truth. God's Word is the truth. It is the whole truth. It is nothing but the truth. It is the truth. 
It is God's word or God's truth that separates the saved from the lost, that separates his disciples from the world, that separates those who are heaven bound from those who are hell bound. It is his word that is the difference. That's why I just did that lengthy reading. His word is the boundary line between the two. I fully believe and accept that God's word is the truth because Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, said so. I absolutely believe and fully accept God's eternal truth that every individual word of God as well as the entirety thereof taken together is true because the word of God says so Matthew 4 4 John 8 31 and 2 and Psalm 119 and verse 60 I believe fully and accept God's eternal truth that within his word is found everything that you or I will ever need to stand complete and flawless in Christ Jesus before God come judgment day. John 12 and verse 38, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I absolutely believe and I fully accept God's eternal truth that unless a person repents of their sins, turns to God and obeys Him, they are going to perish. Because the Word of God says so. Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5, Acts 2.38, Romans 6, and others. I absolutely believe, and I fully accept God's eternal truth, that baptism, specifically for the forgiveness of one's sins, is absolutely essential both prior to and in order for one to be saved. I believe that because the Word of God says so. Acts 2.38, 22.16, 1 Peter 3.21. I absolutely believe and accept, without any question, God's eternal truth that there is one body, which is the church, that there is one Lord, that there is one faith, and that there is one baptism. And I believe that because the Word of God says so. Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. Jude 3, Acts 19, 1 through 6. I absolutely believe and fully accept God's eternal truth. That all of God's people, but particularly his preachers, must be willing to lovingly identify people's sins and warn them to turn from it at every opportunity. Because the word of God says so. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 32, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 4, 4, Ezekiel chapters 3 and 33 and others. Now, sounding the warning loud and clear with the straightforward truth of God's word is one of the most Christ-like, God-imitating truly loving and compassionate things that anybody can ever do in this lifetime. A lot of people today think that when you tell them that what they need to do in order to get right with God, that you're being unloving, unkind, or whatever. Folks, I'm going to say it again. Being willing to sound the warning to people 
is one of the most Christ-like, God-imitating, truly loving, and purely compassionate things that any person can ever do in this lifetime as far as God is concerned. Please open your Bibles this morning to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. While you're turning there, let me say it one more time. One of the most Christ-like, godly, loving things that a person can do is sound the warning. It is compassion personified to do that. The world doesn't see it that way, but God does. Let me prove it. Second Chronicles chapter 36, just before the book of Ezra. Last chapter of Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 11. Watch how compassionate it is to sound the warning, how godlike it is. Second Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah. He was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. See, he should have humbled himself and did what Jeremiah said, because all that Jeremiah said was simply the truth of the word of God. Jeremiah was just a mouthpiece. He was like a, one of these megaphones. He was like a It's all he was. He was a conductor through which God sent his word. It was still God's word. It was not Jeremiah's word. And he sent it to Zedekiah. That's why it says what it does in verse 12. Verse 13, And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck, and he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. He would not listen to God's word. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more. All of them. They, they, they went closer and closer to the brink of hell and eternal destruction. They did according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Verse 15 is critical. It's the key verse to this whole point. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them. Is God love? What did God do? He warned them. He loved them so much that like when you see a child going to play in traffic, you scream at that child and you try to get that child not to go out there and play in traffic. God in his great love. Look what it says he did in this verse. God, the Lord God of their fathers, verse 15, sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he hated them. No, that's not what it says. It says, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. It is one of the most God-fearing, Christ-like things you can do. One of the most compassionate things on the planet you can do to warn somebody, according to that verse right there. See it? But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. Did God try to help them? Yes. Did God try to warn them? Yes. They wouldn't listen. You know, Jesus himself throughout the Gospels, Jesus came and he warned people. He warned and he warned and he warned and he warned. And we know that Jesus was love. Particularly Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, we see him again and again and again warning. 
Do you know that Jesus, who never sinned, who never did anything unloving, unkind, or to hurt anybody, Jesus, God in the flesh himself, do you know that he ended his very revelation to man with a warning? According to Revelation 22, 18 and 19, in the English Standard Version, it reads as follows. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Was Jesus being mean? I warn you, he says... No. He was being loving and compassionate. Jesus wasn't being unloving, but some might say he was being unkind. You know who would say he was being unloving and unkind? Those that didn't want to obey those warnings. Those who wanted to commit those sins and add to his words or take away from his words of prophecy, they would probably think he was being mean. But he's just trying to help them be saved. See, that's what real Christ-like, God-fearing, soul-saving people must do. They cannot allow themselves to be silenced when it comes to sounding the warnings. Again, if you see a child running out to chase a ball and play in traffic, how many of us could just stand there and say, hey, watch this? We'd get sued if we were watching somebody's kids and we did that. We'd get put in jail. Wouldn't we? <laughs> I want you to listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, and I'll tell you the reference afterward, but please just listen as I read it. And like I say, I'll give you the reference. Listen to the warnings of God that the Apostle Paul... The Apostle Paul was willing to sound the warning to people, no matter the personal cost to him, no matter what it cost him. Listen to what he says as he writes to a particular group of saints... This is again from the English Standard Version. He writes, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. How would you like an apostle to write, and in dealing with you, I'm warning you now like I warned you then, and if I come again, I'm going to deal with you. Was the apostle Paul being unloving? He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may, do not, do, that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Do you see how he's, how he's phrasing it? He says, there's these warnings that I'm giving you, we're not going against the truth, we're doing it for the truth. 
For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Listen to his last line. Your restoration is what we pray for. 2 Corinthians 13, 1-9. Consider that. 2 Corinthians 13, 1-9. He starts out by saying, I warn you, just like I warned you before. And he wraps up that little section in verse 9 by saying... Your restoration is what we pray. We are so concerned with your restoration. We want you to be restored to God. We want you with God in heaven. We pray for this all the time. Does that sound like he hated him? No. Did the Apostle Paul truly love the saints at Corinth? Did he or not? The ones he just warned, did he? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 16, 19-24 says so. Let me give you a couple of others that prove how much he loved them. He loved them and warned them. And he warned them because he loved them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll give you time to turn to the issue on. I'm going to be reading mostly or some out of the ESV. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, the English Standard Version says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the people that he just wrote, how he was warning them. He said, I have cried. I've had my heart broken. I am just so torn up because I love you so, so much. I, I want you to know the abundant love that I have for you. It's breaking my heart to watch you not do what God wants you to do. Do you see that? In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 11, according to the English Standard Version, again, right back to these same people he just warned. According to the English Standard, he says, Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. God knows I love you. Remember, this is the same group of Christians that he also wrote to in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 6 explaining what love is. And he said, love does not rejoice with iniquity rejoices with truth. Love cannot rejoice when people are out distancing themselves from God or separating themselves from God. True love doesn't rejoice with iniquity, but it rejoices with the truth. So he says, I'm telling you the truth and I'm warning you. And the reason I'm warning you is because I love you so much it's breaking my heart to see you sever your relationship with God. All of this to the Corinthians. See, the Apostle Paul loved them so much he wanted to see them in heaven and he knew he knew the only way that he was going to see them there was to get them to turn to God, repent of their sins, and obey the truth. And when they weren't willing to do that, Apostle Paul put himself right out there, put himself on the line, sounded the warnings repeatedly whether they wanted to hear it or not. He sounded the warnings repeatedly whether they maligned him for it or not. This is what he did, and he did it because... He loved them. Stop and consider this. That's the same thing he did with the saints in the church of Christ in Galatia. In a text that is referred to in our bulletin article, Galatians 5, if you want to turn there, 
I want to read one more time from the English Standard Version, Galatians 5, beginning at verse 19. He's writing this to a... <laughs> He's writing this to a bunch of Christians, to saints, to the saints in the churches in the Galatian region. And he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, Galatians 5.19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before. He makes a pattern of this. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you were, just put yourself in their shoes for a minute, if you were somebody in one of those congregations in the Galatian region who wanted to continue in your sexual immorality or idolatry or sorcery and whatever it was, and you get this letter from the Apostle Paul, and it's read during Sunday morning services, I warn you, as I warned you before, that if you continue to live like that, you ain't going to heaven. But you really want to continue doing one of these things. How do you feel about Paul? How do you feel about Paul? Who does he think he is? Who is this interloper? How dare he? But we know he loved him. You see, here's one of the most tragic elements of this entire scenario. Think in your own life. How do some people that you love so much you want to see them in heaven. You just you, you want to see this person in heaven. It may be somebody close to you, maybe a friend, maybe a family member. I mean, we all want to see everybody in heaven, but most all of us have a short list of people that were like, I really want to get this person to heaven. And You love them so much you want to see them there, and you've got this Christ-like compassion for them. You've got this godly love for them. You know God can forgive them, and you just, you, you just want them to go to heaven. How do they respond when you lovingly try to warn them, and they don't want to give up their sin? How do they, uh, just think about how they feel. Ever had anybody say bad things about you because you tried to warn them because you loved them? Man, they'll come after you. Th think about it. What, what happens to people in that position when you seek to warn them with the word of God what they must do in order to get to heaven and they don't want to do it? I can think of three things. Number one, they will avoid you or desert you. Number two, they will slander you. Or number three, seek to assassinate your character. Why do I say that? Well, it happened with Jesus. When Jesus was teaching in John 6, verses 60 and following, taught this teaching that some of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can stand it? And what did they do? They walked away, is that correct? Now, <laughs> I want you to think about 
You walk away. Jesus says, okay, this is the way it's going to be. This is the teaching. You say, ah, that's a hard teaching. Who can stand it? You walk away. And somebody meets you on the street. Hey, I thought you were with that Jesus guy. Now, what do you say? Do you say, would it be human nature for you to say, well, you know what? He's right and I'm so wrong that I can't stand to be in his presence. Is that the way most people would react? Would they say, well, you know, I want to go to hell and he's trying to prevent it and he's really a great guy, but I'm a jerk and so I left him. Is that the way most people say things? No. What do they say? You meet somebody on the street, I thought you were that Jesus guy. Yeah, but boy, that guy, is a, he's a lunatic. He's teaching some crazy. Isn't that more like what people would say? Nobody wants to blame themselves for being idiotic. Right? So I doubt these disciples said, well, it's us, it's all us. He's great, we're awful, so we left him. No. Probably be something more along the line, well, teaching just too hard, or he thinks he's the Messiah. Really? Something along those lines. Others, when they couldn't refute the truth that Jesus taught and the warnings he sounded, they didn't just desert him, they went after him personally. They lied about what he had said and taught. We know that from Matthew chapter 26. They hung him on a cross. In the case of the Galatian saints with the Apostle Paul, as you consider them, he sounded the warnings to them. He loved them. How do you suppose they responded? Again, if you were one of those church members and you wanted to continue with one of those things, and Paul said, I'm warning you. You see, it got to the point with the Galatian letters that Paul comes right out. Because they must have responded some way negatively, some of them to that. And I'll tell you how I know that. Galatians 4 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul has to go to the point of saying... Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Some of them, apparently, Jesus was their enemy now. Because he has to ask, have I, you know, have I become your enemy because I tell you these, these things because I warned you like this? And let's go back to the Corinthians. We've already seen several verses in 2 Corinthians where he just said, I, I, I'm so broken up and I love you so much. It hurts so much to see what you're doing. And that's why I'm, those types of things. Let me give you one more verse out of 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15. He says, there, there must have been some that didn't like the warnings. He said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, Am I to be loved less? Do you see the same thing there? He said, I will spend and be spent for your souls. It doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter the personal hurt or pain or lengths I have to go to. I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. But if I love you that much that I'm willing to do that for you, you're going to love me less? You're going to think less of me because I sounded those warnings? Are you going to hate me if I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. You see, some of those saints in Corinth whom he sounded the warnings to and whom he loved so deeply, apparently some of them, it appears they might not have received his warnings with a whole lot of love and embraced them with a whole lot of enthusiasm. Maybe some of them even left the church. I don't know. But look what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. Passage we don't talk about a whole lot. It seems pretty simple on the surface. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But I want you to, to see this. 
2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 3. Now look what the Apostle Paul writes to these saints whom we've covered multiple verses about his love for. He says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Question, is that verse true? Every verse is true. All scripture is inspired by that verse is true. Paul says, we don't give offense, not real offense, not true offense to anybody. We don't offend anybody legitimately. Some might have thought so when he sounded the warnings. But he said, we don't offend, we don't give any offense in anything so that our ministry may not be blamed. We want people to listen to what we say so we make it a point not to offend or be offensive with anything. But folks, listen. Even if you try with everything you've got not to offend people, or some people, you're going to offend. If you talk about Christianity, you're going to offend atheists. If you talk about plaid shirts, you're going to offend people that like plain ones. If you offend people with, if you talk about how much better it is to have long hair, you're going to offend bald people. No matter what you talk about, there's somebody you're going to offend. Paul says, we, we don't give offense. In other words, don't legitimately offend. But they did offend. But this verse has still got to be true, because this is talking about legitimate offense. Let us continue on. But in all things, verse 4, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience. He said, we're patient with people. In tribulations, in needs, in distresses. He said, we commend ourselves in all these. We don't give any offense in any of these things. When they were being... When they were being uh, Persecuted, He said, we don't fire back. We don't, we don't give legitimate offense in anything. In all of these things, we behave right. We behave as God wants us to. Verse 5, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and fastings. He, this is who we are. Look at verse 6. This is who we are. By purity, Paul lived a pure life. By knowledge, Paul was always, always spreading the knowledge and being knowledgeable and he had you know these miraculous gifts he says we're long-suffering this is how we're known verse 6 we're patient in our ministry we're kind by kindness by the Holy Spirit by sincere love I want you not to miss that word sincere he said this is the marks of our ministry this is who we are we sincerely love people and we're kind and we're patient and we're pure. These are marks of our ministry. This is who we are. He says, by the word of truth, verse 7. Paul believed all those things that I read at the beginning of this lesson too, because he wrote most of them. By the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left. Has Paul put forward what God expected him to in his ministry according to this so far? Has he? Has he been the right type of minister? Has he? Yes. But interestingly enough, now I want you to look at the next couple of verses. He says, By honor and dishonor? Look at the next phrase. By evil report and good report? Apparently somebody's talking down about Paul. Paul had done everything he could to be the purest, most righteous, God-fearing, word of truth person. He could don't give any offense to anybody in ministry. But there were still evil reports out there about him. Where do you suppose those came from? Probably people who weren't too awful pleased with the warnings he sounded. Had he been doing evil? 
No. So, where'd the evil report come from? If he wasn't the source of it because his ministry was so stellar, then the evil report had to come from those people that were offended by his stellar ministry. He says, as deceivers, Paul a deceiver? No. But yet somebody believed he was because the ministry was known for this too as deceivers. Paul wasn't deceiving anybody. He said, we, we make it a point to handle the word of God rightly. We don't mess with it. And yet there were people that thought they were deceivers and yet true. And he goes on with this list. What I want you to kind of understand there is that despite his best efforts, which people didn't think too highly of him, Despite your best efforts to be a Christian and live every day for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be people that are going to be offended by the way you live. There are going to be people that are going to have bad things to say about you even when you're doing a lot of good things. They did Paul. You see, mankind hasn't changed today. Same is true as it was about 2,000 years ago. I believe that probably... If you travel to any town in modern-day America where there is a faithful church of Christ, where there's a group of saints, they're not perfect, they're trying to be, but they ain't, where there's a faithful group of hard-working, sincerely loving, God-fearing, sound-the-warning Christians working and worshiping every week, I believe that probably in that same town, if you look hard enough and you look long enough, you're going to find something. You're going to find some disgruntled former members of all of those churches who have nothing but bad to say about the congregation in general and a few particular leaders, period. No matter what town you go to, folks are folks. It's going to happen. And the reason that I believe those disgruntled members, former members, are there, and the reason they're former members, is because something was taught somewhere along the way that was truth, that was right, that was black and white, that they didn't want to accept. So they walked away. And when they walked away, it was the church's fault. It was the elders' fault. It was the preacher's fault. And, and that just drives me nuts. Folks, if elders and preachers, if some of the leaders in this congregation, you guys... If you had the power to actually force somebody not to be here, you know what that would mean? You'd also have the power to force people to be here. And if y'all had the power to force people to be here, there'd be a lot more people here, wouldn't there? So when people are accusing us of, well, they're the reason. No, we're not the reason. You made a choice. Because if I could force you not to come through those doors, I could force you to come through those doors. And if I could force you to come through those doors, there'd be nobody in these houses this morning. Amen? And I believe that the same is true right here in Cleveland. Because you and I believe and have enough Christ-like love and godly compassion, and that's what it is, we've proved it, to sound the warnings and say to people, hey, that's God said that ain't right, you can't live like that. Because we love people enough to do that and to preach and defend the exclusive truth of God's holy word, there are probably some people living in this town locally, and sadly, some of them former members who ought to know better, who have nothing but ridicule, anger, and reviling to level at us is at every opportunity. Why? Because people ain't changed in 2,000 years. 
Because if they did it to Jesus, and they'll do it to the apostles. Jesus said, they'll do it to everybody, John 15. Let me, let me make something perfectly clear before I go any further. There's absolutely no room, no room whatsoever, in the Lord's servants for arrogance, unkindness, or hatred in their presentation of the message of the gospel. There's no room for any of those things legitimately in their lives, in their interaction with other people. That has no place in the life of a Christian. But at the same time, all too often, those who are wanting to stand on nothing but the word of God and the word of truth will sometimes get accused of those things. It's going to happen. When you lovingly sound the warning as you're commanded by God to do, simply speaking or preaching the truth of God's word in love, there is always going to be those who denounce and reject and dislike and distance themselves from you because they can't deny the truth that you preach. It's right there in black and white. They can't deny it. They can't refute it. All they're going to do is reject it and, going after, and go after an easier target, and that's usually you. We began this lesson this morning by looking at some of the last words of Jesus before those who came after him had him killed. Not because he did anything wrong, but because they didn't like the right things that he didn't taught. Before we close this morning, I want to take an opportunity and look at some of the last recorded words of another servant of God just before they got to him and had him killed, not because he did anything wrong. His heart was broken. He loved people so much. But some still gave an evil report of him because they didn't want to accept the right things and the warnings that he had to sound. And that's obviously the Apostle Paul. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Very familiar passage, but in the context of this morning's lesson, please turn there. 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 12, Paul wrote to young Timothy. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction. Uh, correction, by the way, means sounding the warning. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Chapter 4 and verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, it is appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. What's he telling him? He says, you keep on sounding the warning. You don't stop. If people are upset... You keep sounding the warning. If people are related, you keep sounding the warning. If people are listening, you keep sounding the warning. If people plug their ears and run like there's a wildfire behind them, you keep doing it. Preach the word. Be ready whether they're ready or not. Sound the warning for, now watch this, 
The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, there's some there then that would accept sound doctrine. They were obviously members of the church because Timothy's preaching to them. He's not preaching to the people that live, you know, way out there. He's preaching to, this is written for church members, okay? The time will come when some of those church members later on who are enduring sound doctrine now will not do so later, is the implication of verse 3. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. What's going to happen? Verses 3 and 4. There are going to be some Christians in the church who don't like what the Word of God says. They're okay with it now, but they are going to leave the church, and they're going to find somebody to tell them what they wanted to hear all along that you wouldn't tell them. You see that? But Timothy, you, verse 5, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. Why do you think Paul stuck that in there? Endure afflictions. He's just talked about some people are not going to like it, and they're going to leave the church, Timothy. But you, you endure those afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. You keep on sounding the warning. Fulfill your ministry. If you do not do these things, you are not fulfilling your ministry that came from God to preach the word all the time. Paul goes on basically in verses 6 through 8 to say, hey, I did, and look what's happened to me. But you know what? You know what the beautiful part about this is? He says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight, finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What does he say? He says, you keep on enduring it. You keep on preaching it. You keep on standing on the word of God, because I'll tell you what, the reward is worth it. That's verses 6. Paul said, that's where I'm heading. I'm, I'm heading there because I didn't quit. Sounding warnings against people's sin of choice. Whether it's you, y'all, it's me, it's anybody else. Sounding the warning against people's sin of choice does not make you very popular. It does not make you a popular person in town, does not make you a popular person in your family, does not make you a popular person amongst former members, or even sometimes those who are still in attendance. But you know what our defense needs to be in those cases? John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This needs to be our defense. It worked for Jesus, it works for me. In John chapter 18, when he's pulled before the high priest and the council, look what Jesus says. John 18. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have done nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. You know, the case of me in particular, it's no big secret what I preach. Yeah, there's 550 lessons on the website from the last eight years. Well, Doug said, well, go check it out. I mean, it's, it's not a big secret what I preach, okay? When he had said these things, verse 22, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And here's Jesus' answer. It needs to be our answer. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. 
If I've said something that is wrong, if I've said something that is, and this needs to be for all of us, if we've said something that is scripturally erroneous when we tell people they need to be baptized or anything we're trying to teach them, if we've said something erroneous, okay, show me, show me, here. If I've, and I'll, and I'll encourage any of you when I'm up here preaching, if I say something, you say, well, that ain't right. Bring your Bible and come help me to understand what is right. Come show me. If I've spoken evil, then bear witness of the evil. Tell me what I said wrong. But if I've spoken well, Jesus said, why'd you strike me? You know what? If what I said was right, why are you angry with me? However, it is a sad truth that in some congregations, the day eventually comes when the church caves. We see it all across America. The day eventually comes when the church caves in to popular opinion, to thinking that sounding the warning on God's truth is somehow unloving when God says it's the most compassionate thing you can do. The day comes in some congregations, in some places, when numbers in the pews finally become more important than adherence to the truth. There comes a day in some congregations that sin is all of the sudden acceptable for the sake of almighty attendance. That compromise trumps God's commandments for the sake of attendance. When that day comes, in those congregations that allow it to come to that, each individual member, as well as the preacher himself, has a decision to make. Joshua summed it up this way. Chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what public opinion says. God's right. And the day that any congregation in this land... God forbid even this one, comes to the point that numbers in the pews are more important than the black and white of God's word, we all have some decisions to make. Until that day comes, we need to continue to try to love and grow and serve and do everything that God asked us to do together. I started this sermon by telling you I believe every word in this book. Let's always stand on the words of this book, no matter what. If this church winds up with three people, I had rather have three people that are right with God than three million who don't know the truth. The lesson is yours. I apologize for the length. If there's anybody here this morning that would respond to the gospel truth by being baptized into Christ, if you need the prayers of the church to repent of your sins or the prayers of your church for strength, if you need a Bible study to learn more of the truth, if you need anything, please come to the front as we stand and sing.